We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Well, it is our second week of October. You, how do you, how do you, how do you think your first week fared? It was awful. I hate that guy. I hate your girl. I hate everybody. Yes, we are starting along very gruesomely and very uncomfortably. Extremely. We're trying to strike fear into the listeners' hearts. Are we? For October, yes. Okay. Well, then this week we have a very good topic. Real-life vampires. A real-life vampire? Yes. Now, if that doesn't give you the heebie-jeebies, I don't think anything will. Some people like to be bit really hard. Right, but don't drink my blood. That's just weird. Like, as a kid, I used to think think blood was like a replenishable, like, thing, you know, when I was a kid. Just like, you know, thinking like, well, if you, if your body's leaking blood, then can't you just get more blood? But it's just not that simple. Right, I mean, the premise is there, but yeah, it's not that simple. I wish things were that simple, but they're just not. And drinking someone's blood doesn't give you more blood. No. That joint goes right to your stomach. Right, and into your digestive system and then out of your digestive system. So well, therefore, it does you no good. Does you no good indeed. Some people like, eat like, their, their beef, pretty rare and bloody. Mm, I do. So what does that entail? Like, what is the appeal behind that? Not to say I haven't done it before. I just think it tastes better than it being like cooked all the way through. It's just more tender. Like I like mine medium. So it's like a good, like, you know, cooked on both sides, but the center is nice and pink and hot. And still like when you stab into it, the juices are pink. They're not clear. And to me, it just, it just tastes a lot better that way. Now, I don't indulge in beef all the time because, you know, I'm a part-time vegetarian. But when I do steak, yes, it has to be medium. I don't, you know, like the taste of blood per se. If I prick my finger, I will put it in my mouth. But I'm not running around trying to drink people's blood all willy-nilly. You shouldn't because as you hear about these cases today, you would never want to do that yourself. No, I mean, oh, bloodborne pathogens? Who? Oh, no. I don't even want to have to deal with that. I'll just, with my blood, my finger, you know, and that that's as far as I'll go. Maybe a, a tiny bit of cow blood, but, you know, other than that. And hey, they could have corona, so you don't need that happening. Definitely not. So... I guess I'll go first this week. I have a short tale, but when I tell you it goes left really quick, climaxes and falls like all in the span of like two or three days. 
Wow, that sounds yeah. very, very brief. Yeah, I mean, his his whole thing was, it's a mess. So, since I'm going first, we'll go ahead and get started. Gather around, children. It's time for a tale of crime. Richard Trenton Chase was born May 23rd, 1950 in Sacramento, California. By the age of 10, he exhibited evidence of all three parts of the McDonald Triad. Now, V, do you know what the McDonald Triad is? Um, a double cheeseburger, french fries, and an iced Coca-Cola. Mm, that's McDonald's, not McDonald, but that was a good mm. guess. The McDonald Triad, also known as the Triad of Sociopathy or the Homicidal Triad, is a set of three factors that has been suggested if in any combination of two or more are present together to be predicative of or associated with violent tendencies later in life, particularly with relation to serial killers. So, the triad was first proposed by psychiatrist J.M. McDonald in A Threat to Kill, which was a 1963 article in American Journal of Psychiatry. The triad links cruelty to animals, obsession with fire setting, and persistent bedwetting past a certain age to violent behaviors, particularly homicidal behavior and sexually predatory behavior. However, other studies claim to have not found statistically significant links between the triad and violent offenders. But a lot of the, like, really well-known serial killers do exhibit, like, the cruelty to animals, the fire setting, or the, like, bedwetting when they're much older in in their youth. So it has been, I mean, it has some validity because a lot of, especially the cruelty to animals, a lot of these people torture animals when they're younger. Yes, I've read that also. Yes. So Chase, you know, exhibited these signs and that was like by the age of 10. So that was very concerning. But he also developed hypochondria as he matured. He often complained that his heart would occasionally stop beating or that someone had stolen his pulmonary artery. He would hold oranges on his head, believing vitamin C would be absorbed by his brain via diffusion. Okay, this was a dumb kid. He also believed that his cranial bones had become separated and were moving around, so he shaved his head to be able to watch this activity. What? (laughs) Now, unsurprisingly, at the age of 25, Chase was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and institutionalized in 1975 to prevent him from becoming a danger to himself. It was his attempt to inject himself with rabbit's blood, which made him violently ill, 
that resulted in this institutionalization. Do you think he's going to get like bunny hopping powers? No, he just had this thing about not having enough blood in his system. His fascination with blood earned him the nickname Dracula among the psychiatric hospital's assistants who witnessed him kill and attempt to drink the blood of several birds in an effort to stave off the effects of a poison that was, he imagined, slowly turning his own blood to powder. In spite of several similar incidents, the staff believed that he had rehabilitated and Chase was released to live with his mother in 1976. He thought he was being poisoned and his blood was turning to powder as a result of that. And he would drink the blood of any animals he could catch and kill to counteract those effects. It sounds like he lived a really like uh, like paranoid life. Yes, yes. So not long after his release from the psychiatric hospital, he moved out of his mother's house believing that she also was attempting to poison him. Chase rented an apartment with friends, but the roommates constantly complained that he was under the influence of alcohol and drugs. So the roommates demanded that he moved out, he move out, but when he refused, the roommates just moved out instead. Once alone in his apartment, Chase began to capture, kill, and disembowel various animals, which he would then devour raw, sometimes mixing the raw organs with Coca-Cola in a blender and drinking the concoction. Okay, no. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's just, it's disgusting on a whole nother level. First of all, Coca-Cola, dude, drink Pepsi. (laughs) Second of all, Blending it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. So Chase believed that by ingesting the creatures, he was preventing his heart from shrinking. In 1977, August, Nevada police found him late one night in the Lake Tahoe area covered in blood and carrying a bucket with a liver in the back of his pickup truck. Since they determined the blood and organ belonged to a cow, not a human, they let Chase go. Now, just four short months, he went downhill so fast that, I mean, he was already pretty much downhill at this point drinking Coca-Cola. But even further downhill from that. So on December 29th, 1977... Chase killed his first known victim in a drive-by shooting. The victim, Ambrose Griffin, was a 51-year-old engineer and father of two. Ambrose was helping his wife bring in groceries when Chase pulled out a 22 caliber pistol and shot him in the chest. No reasoning behind it. He just did it. He didn't even, like, get out of his car. He attempted to enter the home of a woman two weeks later, but because her doors were locked, he walked away. Chase later told detectives that he took locked doors as a sign that he was not welcome, 
but unlocked doors were an invitation to come inside. You know, that's a common, uh, like, vampire um, sort of, like, lore thing. That, like, you can only enter... You have to be invited in. Yeah. Yeah, so if you don't lock your door, that's pretty much an invitation for vampires to just freely come into your house. Come and get you. Yes. So, he was once caught and chased off by a couple returning home as he pilfered their belongings... And he had also urinated and defecated on their infant child's bed and clothing. What was the rationale behind that? There was none. Now, on January 23rd, 1978, Chase broke into a house and shot Teresa Wallen. Teresa was three months pregnant at the time. He shot her three times then had sexual intercourse with her corpse while stabbing her with a butcher knife. He removed multiple organs, cut off one of her nipples, and drank her blood. He then did something so disgusting to Wallen that I actually am now choosing not to even repeat. It was worse than cutting off a nipple? Much worse. Mm. I can't. Google the story if you want to know what he did to this this poor lady's body. After all of that, I'm I'm not I'm choosing not to say it. On January 27th, Chase entered the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Miroth. He encountered her friend Danny Meredith, whom he shot with his 22 caliber handgun, then took Meredith's wallet and car keys. He then fatally shot Evelyn, her six-year-old son, Jason, and her 22-month-old nephew, David Ferreira, before mutilating Evelyn. Then he partially cannibalized her. Her stomach was cut open, and she had multiple organs missing. It's also alleged that Chase engaged in necrophilia with her corpse as well. Visitors knock on the door, startled Chase, who fled in Danny Meredith's car, taking Ferreira's body with him. The visitor alerted a neighbor who called the police. They discovered that Chase had left perfect handprints and shoe prints in Evelyn's blood. Now, he was arrested shortly afterwards. And the police searched his apartment and found that the walls, floor, ceiling, refrigerator, and all of Chase's eating and drinking utensils were soaked in or stained with blood, and his refrigerator contained human brains. Now, the sensational trial of the Vampire of Sacramento began on January 2nd, 1979, and lasted five months. The defense attorney rejected or rejected the suggested death penalty on the grounds that Chase was not guilty by reason of insanity. But in the end, after five hours of deliberation, Chase was found guilty of six counts of murder and sentenced to death by gas chamber. 
Now, Chase granted a series of interviews with Robert Ressler, during which he spoke of his fears of Nazis and UFOs, claiming that although he had killed, it was not his fault. He had been forced to keep himself alive, which he believed any person would do. Were aware of his crimes and were also frightened by him, which is understandable. And they often encouraged him to kill himself, according to correctional officers. And in the end, Richard Chase did just that. He began stockpiling anti-anxiety medications, which he was offered by the jail staff, until he had enough for a fatal overdose. And he was found dead in his cell the day after Christmas in 1980. And sadly, the 22-month-old's body was found behind a church like a few months later after um, he had fled the house. So they didn't even find him immediately, even though they caught him immediately. Oh, my gosh. Dang. And that was the Vampire of Sacramento. That was awfully horrifying. This guy was really, really was something wrong in the head. Yeah, like he he really thought that drinking blood from other beings was keeping him alive. Like, I mean, I guess I could probably go with the insanity. Like, because he was definitely, definitely... Not well. No. Uh, but, you know, I I don't know, because it's not even like he tried to hide it. So I can't even say maybe he wasn't insane. It, it seems like he just didn't think he was doing anything wrong. I wonder why he didn't have, like, any other kind of thing about, like, why he wasn't worried about other people's low blood volume or whatever. Yeah, that's, it seems like he was only concerned with himself. Maybe that was like part of his schizophrenia that he thought these things were just happening to him. Oh, some poor, poor soul with a serious blood to powder condition. Yeah, Man. that would suck if that was real. Awful guy. Terrible. Well, Key, that was a uh, frightening story. A story that will keep you in your keep you up in your bed at night with your covers clenched to your bosom. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's not mention bosoms. Wait, oh, I'm sorry. I thought this was a E-rated podcast. My mistake. I'm just saying we're not in 1942. Well, vampires are very old-fashioned, so, you know, I thought it was appropriate. They are like vampires really do give you a 1800s vibe. Say like vampires are right after the Lovecraftian times. All I right. don't know what times those are, but I'll just take your word for it. You don't know who uh, Lovecraft is, the author? Mm, no. Wow. You have to put me up on that. I guess so. I mean, you know, you know what Cthulhu is. I've heard of it. Okay, well, he made Cthulhu, H.P. Lovecraft. Oh. All right, all right, anyway. Now we'll get over to my story 
the tale of Visago, or as he was born, Roderick Farrell. Sandra Gibson gave birth to Roderick Justin Farrell on March 28, 1980, in Moray, Kentucky, when she was just 16 years old. She had only been married to his father for three weeks before they broke it off and she moved back in with her parents. An emotionally damaged teenager turned mom, she did not always make the best decisions, but she loved her son to death, with him now being the only man in her life. It was Sandra who first exposed Rod to his fascination with vampires. They would watch Dracula movies together, and she even got him involved later with Vampire the Masquerade, a tabletop role-playing game which would become a big part of his fantasy. More on that later. There are those that believe her love went beyond what a mother should have for her child. Letters were found, written 34 at the time, to a 14-year-old boy. And the letter reads as quoted, I long to be near you for your embrace. Yes, to become a vampire, a part of the family, immortal, and truly yours forever. I only hope that one day you will once again return to Marais. You will then come for me and cross me over and I will be your bride for eternity, and you, my sire. That's weird to write to a 14-year-old. Is it weird to write to a 14-year-old, or weird to write to your son? Both. <laughs> so, fast-forwarding another two years, a 16-year-old Rod made friends who also became entranced by the tabletop game. Originally, the group called themselves the Victorian Age Masquerade Performance Society, or VAMPS. VAMPS had a $25 membership fee and met once a month. The cash was used for props and costumes so that they could perform in front of a live audience. There was no harmful physical contact allowed, no weapons, and no members could be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Rod fell deeper and deeper into the world of this role-playing game. And before Vamps disbanded, Rod had around 30 youths from 15 to 19 years of age who fell in love with the world with him. Vamps disbanded when Rod, his friend Harold Scott, Charity, Heather, and Dana took things to the extreme. The members began cutting each other's arms and drinking the blood to gain immortality. It was a very sexual act for the vamps, and actually considering themselves to be a higher race, the next step in human evolution, a vampire amongst humans. So, as you can tell, this is like slightly progressing more and more into like this, this, this vampirism thing. Right, like a weird cult type deal. Yeah, they're they're just like they're just teenagers. Like this guy led them along, and he, of course, he was he was Visago. That that was that was his um vampire name, vampire identity, and like that's Visago was like a five hundred year old vampire, or something like that. Like he, like you know, the the whole backstory to it and everything. 
Calm down, Lost Boys. Calm down. <laughs> so the member the member Heather, she 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 was not a big fan of her parents. Like she thought her parents were very, very strict. Like she just she she it was she was a teenager and so of course she just expressed the fact that like, you know, they don't let her do anything that she hates them and everything like that. Right, right. And so Rod and Scott take matters to their own hands because they wanna they wanna ditch town anyway. Because at this point, um they're in Florida. They're no longer in, well well, they were never in Kentucky, but Rod's no longer in Kentucky. He's in Florida. And so on November twenty fifth, nineteen ninety six, the week of Thanksgiving, Naomi Ruth Queen and Richard Windruff were found by their daughter Jennifer Windruff beaten to death in their Estes, Florida home. While 49-year-old Richard Windruff was asleep on the couch and Ruth was in the shower, Rod and his accomplice, Harold Scott Anderson, entered the house through the unlocked garage, picking up the murder weapon, a crowbar. Before Richard had even awakened, Rod had beat him multiple times with it, fracturing both his skull and ribs, almost instantly knocking him out and killing him shortly thereafter. Damn. A very, very brutal way to assassinate someone. When Ruth had found Rod and Scott in their home moments later, Rod bludgeoned her to death, bashing her head in with a crowbar. In his confession, he claimed that the original plan was to let her live, but he claimed that she attacked him by lunging at him and throwing a very hot cup of coffee on him, which angered him and made him change his mind and kill her also. Now, I don't know. To my understanding, like most, most houses are set up to where if you leave your bedroom from, well, if you leave your bathroom, you don't have instant access to the kitchen. Like you have to go through where the couch is to get to the kitchen. So I would suspect that after she got out of the shower, she got changed, maybe just into like a, like a night robe or something like that, and went through and was going to go through the living room to say like you know talk to her husband or sit on the couch with him, and then that's where she found them, and she probably just screamed, and he probably was like you know was panicked and killed her too, because I don't think that she would have had any coffee to throw on on them you know but that's that's just my interpretation of the situation yeah like they startled her like you know she was coming out of the kitchen and they startled her yeah yeah but like but but like um yeah but i don't know i feel i feel like she i don't i don't know i, I feel like after she would take her shower she wouldn't have gotten coffee before like i don't know like calling out to her husband or seeing something oh no something you know like she didn't step out into the from the bathroom into the kitchen right yeah yeah because like no one's no one's um bathroom is connected to their kitchen like that but anyway next thing that transpired was that there was a v burned into richard's chest it was mm, said v <laughs> it was said that the v was rod's symbol which he accompanied with a dot for each person he considered to be a member of his vampiric council. The V is believed to stand for his vampiric identity, Visago. 
now. That's a, a totally different V, a very, a very evil V. I would not do anything like that. I know you wouldn't. My V's are very, very like uh, extravagant too. The way I make my V. So I wouldn't have time to do that in someone's chest. It takes a very precise, confident swipe stroke. And I don't think I can do that on skin. Oh, well, good for humanity. We know you're not going to be out here killing folks and putting a V on their chest. Now, if if skin, if flesh and flesh was the consistency of paper, all bets are off. I got it. But skin is very, very rough and thick, so I can't do that. Yes. So these victims were the parents of Heather Windruff, Jennifer Windruff's sister and a longtime friend of Rod's, who he was helping run away from a home that she described as, quote unquote, hell. Heather and the other girls, Charity and Dana, that were with Rod and Scott were not at the Woodruff house when the murder took place. Charity, Kesey, and her friend Dana Cooper had driven to Heather's boyfriend's apartment so Heather could say goodbye before leaving for New Orleans, leaving Rod and Scott outside the Woodruff home. After four days of driving through four states, the group was found in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It is believed that Rod liked the video arcade in New Orleans, and they were headed there. Now, Charity called her grandmother in South Dakota. The group needed money, and Charity thought their grandmother could help her out. But guess what grandma did? I don't know. Grandma said, hold that thought, sugar, and called the cops and reported where they were staying so the cops could get them. All right, now, Grandma. Grandma did the right thing. She was like, my baby's going off the deep end. She's a vampire now. She said she's going to be immortal. These kids have killed someone. It's all over the news. It's not happening. Now I'm on watch. Hey, that's the kind of grandmas we need. Yeah, so so she set up, um, she set up a, um, she well, she pretty much told her, her granddaughter that the money was sent, like, you know, money gram or whatever, so go to this go to this store to pick it up, and boom, the cops were there. So, the four were held at a Baton Rouge jail for a week before being extradited back to Florida, where they were initially booked at the Lake County Jail. They were later moved to a juvenile facility in Ocala. February 12, 1998, the murder trial commenced. His mother was in attendance, and his birth father, Rick, who had no part of his childhood, was hunted down by family to appear in court also. Father Rick did not speak, but when referring to Rod, he called him, quote-unquote, the child. The then 17-year-old Rick pleaded guilty to the murders, claiming that the others traveling with him were innocent except for Scott Anderson, who was simply an accessory. Rod pleaded guilty to two counts of felony murder. Rod's attorneys tried to argue that he was insane. He has been diagnosed with mental disorders, including schizotypal personality disorder and Asperger's syndrome. The University of Florida further attested to the fact that Rod could sometimes witness spiritual things like angels and demons. 
Judge Jerry T. Lockett sentenced Roderick Justin Farrell to death. Charity Kesey was convicted of two counts of third-degree murder and robbery with a gun or deadly weapon. Burglary with an armed weapon or explosive were added in there, too. She was sentenced to ten and a half years in state prison. Now, Donna Cooper was convicted of the same charges, but was given 17 and a half years in prison. Howard Scott Anderson was convicted of the same charges as Rod and was sentenced to life in prison. For two years, Farrell held the record as the youngest inmate on death row until November 2000, when Florida Supreme Court reduced his sentence to life in prison. Because Florida had long abolished parole, the sentence is without it. Charity was released from prison in March 2006, and Donna was released from prison in October 2011. In 2013, an appellate court dismissed attempts by Rod Farrell and Scott Anderson to get a new Senate hearing. However, in December 2018, Scott Anderson was resentenced by Don Briggs to 40 years in prison. Anderson was given credit for the 22 years he's already served, with him being the first eligible for release in 2031. Ruth, Ruth Windruff's relatives attended Scott's resentencing hearing and did not oppose his early release. Really? I'm surprised by that. Well, they were actually more concerned with Rod. Oh, because he was the, like, ringleader. Yeah. He was scheduled to face his own resentencing in July 2019. His sentencing was then moved to November 18th, and then once again in April 2020, and the sentencing judge upheld his life without parole sentence and deemed him irreparably corrupt. Scott is currently incarcerated in the Calhoun Correctional Institution, while Rod is currently in the Tomoka Correctional Institution. I'm glad his sentence was upheld. Yes, me too. And what's sad about it on his end is that he can't even see the revitalization of the franchise he once loved. So the role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade is still going on today, but it's now turned into a video game. And back then, Rod used his imagination with, you know, uh, pencil and paper to create his own character and his own lifestyle. But now the game is a first-person RPG where characters create, can create their own characters through a character creation screen and decide their backstory at the beginning of the game. So he would have been in love with it nowadays. But unfortunately, he did the crime, so he has to pay the time. Do you think if his mother hadn't had such a weird obsession with him and got him into vampires that he would have not done this? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely don't think so because, like, because, like, I, I don't know too many people whose parents were like or super into horror movies and showed them to them as a kid, because it mainly goes like you know when you see a scary movie as a kid or something like a monster or a vampire, you're like gonna be afraid of it when you're a kid. But if your your mom or dad's like, oh my god, like look how cool this part is or stuff, you're gonna be into it. So I definitely think that definitely, you know, yeah, it definitely just set him off to his path, yeah. Yeah, because, like, some movies are, you know, I guess considered horror movies, but aren't really, like, Teen Wolf. 
Like, I don't see a problem with a kid watching Teen Wolf. Because it's not, like, no. gory. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Teen Wolf is, like, uh, it, it, like, it has, like, you know, a happy ending and everything. Right, so I think it's kind it, of more of a, you need to be cognizant of the age of who you're showing what movie. Yeah, because like if you show if like if you show your kids Jason Voorhees instead of Black Panther, they're gonna be like, I wanna be like Jason Voorhees when I get older. You know, I wanna be the the big, strong, teleporting killer dude with a with a sword. So two stories. One, I got a brother named Jason, and that was his go to Halloween costume all the time. So uncreative. <clears throat> Very. And two, your mom used to take me to Freddy Krueger movies when I was little. Like, Freddy Krueger came out in, like, 85, 86. Wait, no. It had to have been later than that. Remember on Elm Street? Yeah. I definitely remember her taking me to the movie theaters to see that. Well, like, she was just stuck with watching you, wasn't she? Yeah. So, okay, so... Nightmare on M Street came out in 84, so it wasn't that movie. Do you know, like, Johnny Depp was in one of these? Like, young Johnny Depp was in one of these movies? Oh, he he was in the first one, yeah. Yeah, he, he was Glenn. So, I'm thinking that Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, is the one that she took me to. And I would have been six. So. Super traumatized. That's still the only scary movie villain that I am still to this day scared of and will not watch any of the movies. (laughs) No, because think about it. Every other scary movie villain you can get away from, but you cannot stay awake for the rest of your life. You will sleep at some point. That's very true. Like, that's the scariest thing about Freddy Krueger is that you have to go to sleep at some point. You cannot just literally stay up the rest of your life. Yeah, that is that is pretty, like, pretty cheating. Yeah. I think it was kind of smart, though, because, like, anybody else, you can fight, you can outrun, you can hide, but you can't stay awake forever. One, two, it's going to come for you. Okay, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) so now that you've properly given me the heebie-jeebies how are you going to bring this up because I'm like about to be in the corner crying no I don't say that started singing that song don't say that now um I wanted to talk about some upcoming horror movies, but they've kind of been, like, pushed back because they're making a new Candyman, which was a favorite of Rose back in the day. I don't think I've ever watched Candyman. You never saw the first Candyman? I don't believe so. Mm. I know Rose, like, really loved it. And 2020 is not the year to be summoning people like that. Right. <laughs> no, but that would like. I don't know. Like, I feel like the theater. Like, that's the kind of movie you you have to see in the theater. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Seen that, seen that theater or a late night drive-in. Oh, even more gosh. freaked out. That would be great. Look, in the I hope there is a big resurgence in drive-in theaters. I actually did one um, back in July. Oh man, was it far? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, kind of, it's kind of like towards Greenwood, South Carolina. That's where I was gonna ask you. That's the only one that I know of. But um, yeah, yeah. They played it one and Annabelle. Oh wow! Oh, I bet that was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that would be fun. Like if drive-throughs like really made a comeback. Yeah, yeah, definitely would be. Yeah, because like you know that way people can still enjoy being somewhere, not just cooped up, and like they have like a nice experience there too. And like I, I personally think it's funner than a movie theater because you're in your own vehicle, so you're more comfortable. If you have a couple car or a car you're just used to being inside of. And like, yeah. I don't fall asleep in drive-in theaters, but I always fall asleep in movie theaters. That's weird. Maybe because you're behind, you know, because you're in the car. Maybe your body just won't let you. Which is good. Good instinct in my body's part. Thank you, body. Yes, but Aunt Kay used to sneak us into the drive to the drive-ins back in Detroit. Was she, was she like Pidgey in a blanket in the back seat, like cover everyone up? Like, yeah, yeah she had a station us. wagon. And so, like, <laughs> we would have to lay down in the back and she'd cover us with a blanket. And then, like, you know, there'd be like maybe like two other kids that were actually visible. Yeah, so she just played for herself and the other two kids. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And then we'd like lay on the hood and on the roof of the car and watch the movie. It was fun, it was a lot of fun. That sounds great. So I need everyone to donate to Keys Drive-In. Because that's what I want to do now. I want to build a drive-in. So please, everyone, donate on PayPal. We shouldn't talk about this. Gmail.com is the PayPal. Please help us start a drive-in movie theater. And we won't use a Amazon projector. We'll get some legit... Yes, actual movie projector that you're supposed to use. Not beaming it from our car to a large, or from our phones to a large screen TV. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but you got to start somewhere, so maybe it will be that at the beginning. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Yeah. Then, you know, we'll have just like the Oval Redenbacher popcorn for you. Gross. Popcorn is nasty. We'll buy dollar candy bars, sell them for $3 so you get the real experience. But, I mean, you're in your car. You could bring your own food, literally. Oh, okay. So it won't be one of those drive-ins where you can't. Don't let you do that. I mean, because who who are we, the drive-in police? We definitely can be. Nah, just bring your own food. You heard here first, folks. I don't want to have to deal with the like the food regulations <laughs> and the cleaning. I worked in a restaurant. I don't want to deal with that. Okay, okay. You, you've you've been there and you you've seen the dark side. Yes, I have, and it's no. 
So just bring your own food, bring a blanket, and we'll bring the cell phones and big screen TVs. <laughs> I hope I hope 37 inches is okay for everybody. No, gosh, no. <laughs> so basically one car gets to watch them. <laughs> Tickets, tickets selling out fast. Don't delay. Get them now. Right, because you definitely want to be the first car in. <laughs> you can get the best seat. Well, that was a nice way to bring it up. We're venturing off into movie theater moguls. <laughs> we got to make this podcast productive somehow. Yes, we do. We're not going to just sit and talk forever. We got to have a a forward-moving plan. Yes, we do. So, so drive-in theater, that's our next goal. All right, that sounds good to me. All right. Well, with that being said, I'm Key. And I'm B. And this is B. We shouldn't talk about this. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.